Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Journal of Managed Care Oncology Stakeholder Summit Fall 2016 Peer Exchange Video Program. My name is Dr. Andrew Bacora. I'm president of the Physician Enterprise Division and Chief Innovations Officer at Hackensack Meridian Health in New Jersey. I am also founder of Regional Cancer Care Associates, LLC, a large oncology practice. Joining this distinguished panel to share their perspective is Dr. Rena Conti, an Associate Professor of Health Policy and Economics for the Pediatric Department, Hematology Oncology Section, and for the Department of Public Health Studies at the University of Chicago in Illinois, and Dr. Brenton Farnoli, an Associate Medical Director of Strategic Initiatives for Flatiron Health in New York. And joining us remotely will be Dr. Bhuvana Sagar, National Medical Director, Cigna Healthcare. Thank you again for joining us. Let's begin. I'd like to start by having my colleagues introduce our, themselves. Rena? Sure. I'm Rena Conti. I am an Associate Professor of Health Policy at the University of Chicago in the Departments of Pediatrics and Public Health Sciences. And Brenton? I'm Brenton Farnioli, uh, Associate Medical Director of Strategic Initiatives at Flatiron Health. Great. Well, let's get started, guys. So as we know, we're in a transformative time in healthcare. We have an explosion in information and science and medicine. It's so exciting. But at the same time, uh, physicians, patients, and our government itself is facing literally a crisis as it relates to healthcare reimbursement and expenditures. CMS, as well as other private insurers, have been developing tools that reward improved outcomes and high quality of care defined as alternative payment models. And everyone is talking about how are we going to move as a nation from fee-for-service to value-based reimbursement? So why don't we start, Brenton, with you to start to talk about some of the models that you're becoming familiar with and, and your thoughts about them. Sure. I think I'd like to start with kind of the, the long history of alternative payment models that began outside of oncology. So um, patient-centered medical homes and primary care. In, in 2008, I helped um, uh, in Rhode Island, Blue Cross, uh, set up a model with that. Uh, AC, then transformed over from primary care to ACOs. And now we're really using those learnings and tenets to apply to the oncology space. And we've seen a number of national payers uh, piloting alternative payment models and now the government as well. And so we can go into details on those, but at a high level, there's Anthem who has a pathways or evidence-based medicine program. Cigna as well as Aetna are doing medical home models in oncology. Um, United Health as well as a case management type program. And what CMMI and CMS have done is they've leveraged a lot of this work and piloting that's been going on with the national payers to roll out a quite ambitious uh, payment model in, called the OCM. And I'm sure we'll get to this later, the yes. details of that. But this now we have national payers, the government, all um, working on similar uh, alternative payment models for oncology. Great. Marina? So what I would say is a, there's a major transformation happening, particularly in the way in which government payers are paying oncologists, most notably Medicare. We used to have a system where um, we uh, paid physicians fee-for-service, and what that meant is that they got paid for everything they did, and the more they did or the more intensive care that they provided, the more they got paid. Now we're moving towards a system of um, um, of kind of dismantling the old fee-for-service system and moving into an area where we're kind of paying for value. Um, and there are, um, 
I would say there are three uh, kind of general types of these models. There's one which is fee-for-service with quality metric payment component. Um, then there's an alternative payment model that sits on top of a fee-for-service metric but has, or fee-for-service payment model that has some other um, care management requirements. So um, Anthem Pathways program would be an example of that. And then finally, there are alternative payment models where physicians or physician groups are taking full or partial financial risk for care and um, in exchange for more control over the finances, they're also in more control of the kind of whole bundle of care being provided to patients. Um, ACOs, medical homes, those are types of models that fit under that rubric. You know, so one of, one of my concerns is as we move to value, how do we guarantee patients they're going to get the proper outcomes, which means they're going to get the proper care. And as we go through this discussion, I'll be bringing that up over and over again. Fee-for-service payment and alternative payment models will be used simultaneously for some time. Uh, we believe this is going to create confusion and it's going to make it difficult. I mean, when you go from one room to the next, never mind who's the payer and what's their plan, but is this patient on an alternative payment model versus are they traditional fee-for-service? How do you see that affecting the flow of practice and what, what are you thinking about that? Yeah, so it's certainly a hurdle while we're doing this transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. And we've seen uh, oncologists who have, are participating in alternative payment models, but even within the alternative payment models, there's variation. So you can be in a pathways type of alternative payment model, but have five different pathways programs. So just being in value-based care alone doesn't reduce that variation. And then in terms of moving from fee-for-service to value-based care, um, there's one sense on the physician front of the clinical, uh, the clinical impact and you know, as physicians, we all want to treat patients with the same high level of quality. But then there's this other component of the program requirements that be can become a distraction if they are too varied and too numerous. And so finding consensus around those, I think, are going to be very important on the clinical side. And on the payer side, um, there's oncology is a big part of payers, but there's also cardiology, orthopedics, um, primary care. And so having two separate types of programs uh, becomes a bandwidth resource and expertise challenge for them to uh, be administering programs that are both fee-for-service and alternative payment models. Um, so I would say from the payer side there's much less confusion. Um, both government payers but also commercial payers have been paying both fee-for-service and some sort of alternative payment model at least in other areas of medicine, if not oncology, for at least 20 years now. Um, for providers, I think it's a big change. Um, most notably, um, there's going to be times where physicians are going to have to kind of keep track of um, having patients that are both pay being paid fee-for-service and being paid um, in an alternative payment model at the same time, even um, within uh, patients that are being paid within an alternative uh, payment model framework, there's going to be differences in allowable treatment regimens, um, even for the very similar type of cancer. Um, I view this as having a very significant practice change costs. What I mean by that is it's both the physician who's going to have to be a little bit more flexible about how they um, 
they perceive recommended treatment protocols, but also the staff of a lot of these practices is going to have to get very um, uh, good at switching from one patient to another or one type of payment model to another um, in, in managing the kind of set of patients that they are responsible for at a given period of time. You know, one of the, one of the ways to address that uh, and I know practices are doing it, I know our large practice, we have 120 oncologists in RCCA, is we're standardizing approaches for all payers up front regardless of the type of payment. It's really not practical at scale to change your behavior from room to room and I think uh, that's, that's, uh, that's one of the things. And the other is that um, using technology, EMR, uh, things on top of EMRs uh, is also going to be an essential but you, you made a very good point, and that is, is that these things cost money. Mm -hmm. And in order to get a return on investment, uh, you have to have a return on investment. So <laughs> right. uh, who, uh, from your perspective, who's responsible for upfront funding of the transformation? Is it government, is it the payer, is it the patient, or is it the doctor? There's already payment incentives in some of the government uh, programs for transforming care systems, investing in EMRs, et cetera. Um, that was part of the, the High Tech Act that was passed before um, the ACA. Um, and frankly, I think practices are going to have to foot a lot of the bill for this, for this transformation um, in order to really stay sane in the middle of a lot of change. Um, one other thing I wanted to be sure to mention is that um, not all physicians are going to want to be able to keep track or it be able to keep track of all the different payment methods um, that their patients are um, flowing into their practice um, being covered by. And so one of the things I think the practices really need to decide um, and then build infrastructure around is to what extent is this the physician's job to kind of keep track of um, different payment methods and different potential treatment regimens and to what extent is this the clinic staff's job. Um, that's going to cost money, but um, this is the new reality. Now let's jump back over to Dr. Sarga and get her take. To give an overview of the oncology models in the value-based world, there are several different approaches that different payers are taking on. Of course, Medicare, who's the biggest payer, has come out with the OCM model, and several of us uh, are participating uh, in the OCM model. And the OCM model is more of an episode-based approach, um, and there are different episode-based approaches, and there's also bundle payment methodologies that are there. Uh, there are also several APMs that are focusing on compliance with pathways. And there are some pathways that are more focused on just the medical oncology drug component, and there are some pathways that you know, look at the whole journey, from the diagnosis all the way to end stage. When is palliative care appropriate? When is you know, scan appropriate? You know, this could be from initial diagnosis, uh, and also when they have completed their therapies. So episodes in general start with some sort of a trigger, and it could be a chemotherapy trigger or surgical trigger, um, and they follow them along for six months. Majority of the uh, episodes that I'm aware of are going on for about a six month period. Uh, and they track the cost in general. They also try to track quality to make sure that um, you know, they get the appropriate care that they need and there's not underutilization. Um, bundle payments in general, 
not applicable in the advanced stage as far as I've seen. They're generally in the earlier stage cancers um, where there's a definitive treatment and the period is also clearly defined. So maybe four months or six month period uh, where all the costs are accounted for uh, and there's a comparison on is there any cost savings when you're doing it in the value-based world. Now pathway compliance, um, it, this probably would be more applicable not just to the bigger groups but also to the smaller groups and individual practitioner to try to get a sense of how compliant are they with NCCN guidelines. There are several pathways out there. A lot of the pathways are built off of NCCN guidelines. Uh, no, there are some pathways that are broader range pathways and then there are some pathways that narrow down a little bit more to um, if the outcomes are similar, can we pick the more affordable regimen? And there are pros and cons and it's a very controversial area, uh, I understand, but, um, but there are different ways of measuring value uh, overall. The oncology care model has been launched by CMS. Uh, for I actually wrote the app, successful application and got the grant for our group. And one of the things that struck me was that uh, there was a lot more emphasis in the beginning on process than there was on actual clinical outcomes. Like you're not measuring uh, survival, you're not measuring progression-free survival. Most doctors would say what we're measuring really has nothing to do with the quality of the care I give. Mm -hmm. And even oncology-specific issues are very, very rudimentary. They're not at all sophisticated. Are you using the right targeted therapy, uh, given this uh, genetic mutation, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd like to discuss uh, this, the OCM model with both of you, but I'd like you also to put a little bit in the context that oncology, unlike other fields, is evolving so rapidly, and we're learning so much, and care and actual care processes are changing uh, where it would have been a nicety if you're an academic center five years ago to get a genomic profile on a tumor's lung cancer. Now it's medical malpractice if you don't. Mm -hmm. So um, what are some of the requirements under the OCM model, Brent? I know sure. that you've worked on this. Yeah, it works extensively on the OCM and they break it into kind of six, six buckets of requirements to be eligible for the program. So to be eligible for an additional per member per month payment and eligible for shared savings in addition to the baseline fee for service. And those requirements, there's, there's three that a lot of practices are doing already today. One is having an ONC certified EHR. Two is having 24 seven access to a clinician who has access to your medical record. Many oncologists take call on the weekends and already have that system in place. Um, the third being um, a broad category of patient navigation. And within that, there's, there's several different layers of assisting with transportation, assisting with interpretation services, and other things. And then there's a whole other three that are fairly new to a lot of practices. Um, and this has to do with quality measurement. As you mentioned, there are uh, quality measures that may or may not be measuring true outcomes, but there's 13 sets of practice-reported quality measures. There is a 13-point institute of medicine care plan that every patient in the program uh, has to be made for. And then the third piece is there is requirement of guideline adherence and documentation of reasons for um, when patients are going off, off of that guideline. And so those, those three pieces we found practices having to install a lot of new practice transformation, whether it's people or technology or frankly both. And those are the, the six requirements in order to be eligible for 
participation in the program and the financial incentives that come with it. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a good summary. So I'd like to ask you a question from your perspective as an economist. Uh, again, looking at the role of the payer, either the government or, or private payers that are all overseen by various agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, when it's CMS, it's Congress. When it's a private payer, it's usually the Department of Insurance in a particular state. So obviously, reimbursement affects behavior. That's the whole reason we're changing reimbursement. Mm -hmm. But how do we assure the citizens of the United States and our patients that these changes are for the good clinically? You know, patients come particularly to cancer doctors mm -hmm. for one fundamental reason. They don't want to die of their cancer. Mm -hmm. And how do we assure that as we're doing all these things, that if we're not measuring the true outcomes that matter, that we're not, in fact, maybe we're saving some money, but who's responsible if we go down a road that saves some money, but outcomes aren't as good? Right. So um, this is something that I think a lot about. Um, the, the bottom line is that um, right now we're in a situation where um, there's a lot of overuse of care that doesn't provide any clinical benefit to patients in terms of survival or quality of life, um, but is um, just built into the system. Um, at the same time, a lot of care um, that does provide significant quality of life benefits and maybe some mortality benefits are underused or not used at all, um, depending on where you're treated, um, because, um, because of the financing. Um, so the point of all of this change is to improve quality of care, to reduce overuse of services that we know cost a lot, but frankly don't do much, if anything at all, um, and potentially put patients at harm, um, and increase the stuff that we know um, is good for patients and good for their families as well. There's a lot of conversation about the importance of population health. And uh, you know, if you look at a population of patients, however you codify them, uh, there's people that are treated ideally, and there's people who get too little care, and there's also people who get too much care. And the people on the end of those spectrums don't get the desired outcome. Either you're wasting money uh, and doing harm, or you're not doing enough and you're doing harm, even if you're saving money. Mm -hmm. So you know, we've been working a lot on finding the Goldilocks zone, not too much, not too little, just right, mm -hmm. and looking at what we do as it affects total cost of care. So I just have one follow-up question to both of you. So one of the problems with the insurance industry is it's unlike the mortgage industry. If I buy a house, I don't pay for it all at once. I actually amortize it over a period of time. That's my mortgage. Mm -hmm. So when we move, like in hepatitis C, when we had these drugs coming into the market that cure patients, mm -hmm. and you take them for a very short time, but they're hugely expensive, mm -hmm. that's very hard if you're an insurance company to figure out how you're going to do the actuarial, actuarial analysis. Now we have immuno-oncology drugs that we're going to get to a little bit later mm -hmm. that are changing the whole paradigm of how we think about cancer. Mm -hmm. Cure word. So my question for both of you is, what thoughts have you given? How do we enable and support us spending more money up front when it can save a lot of money long term? Mm -hmm. And how do we do that from an insurance perspective and how do we do that from a clinical perspective? So I'll start with you. Um, well, so th that's the wonderful part of having a government as the payer. Government doesn't need to 
um, uh, uh, make uh, annual revenue um, or save a certain amount of money um, over a very short period of time. Instead, they can invest in population health um, in now in the, and um, wait for the payoff in the future. Um, part of, I think, what is happening um, with the excitement over some alternative care models, particularly medical homes and ACOs, um, is really putting uh, physicians and medical practices in that same seat of really wanting to invest in preventive care and in um, investing in kind of some long-term um, or into invest in certain types of care that provide long-term benefit and provide giving them a financial incentive to do so. Um, so I, I think that um, it, it's remarkable that um, that Medicare has um, waited this long in oncology um, to start thinking through, okay, what is the investment that we're getting that is upfront? What kinds of payoff does it have in the future? We want to make sure that patients who have cancer and who are going to um, be able to work and um, care for their families can continue doing so. That's an investment um, that pays off in many different ways over time. We want to give providers um, the same incentive to think of their patients um, as a whole um, and, um, and get, get them financially um, uh, cognizant of those type of long-term payoffs as well. Great. And from a clinical perspective, you know, the patient it's their, it's their health and their life for the duration, uh, whereas maybe one year they're with Aetna or another year they switch and go to Cigna and then the third year they're on Medicare. And so there's a different entity footing the bill, if you will. But um, I think as you mentioned here, the, the point of this all is the patient. And so if we can bring that back to this is the patient and it's a choice for their duration. So it's not about um, what is the impact going to be today, but also the impact for this single patient uh, for the next 20 years. And so I think that's one key component. I think the second key component being drug prices are part of the cost. Uh, they're not the entire cost. And so when you look at that entire patient journey, certainly there's a piece around um, selecting the right treatment. Uh, but then after that, are we identifying the patients uh, to uh, provide enhanced care management to prevent hospitalization? And then towards the end of life, are we providing uh, enhanced palliative care to increase quality of life? Uh, and decrease total cost of care. And so taking that total, uh, total, total view, I think is going to be, be important as well. Yeah, so I've, I've been involved uh, with government recently in an advisory role, and I'm pleased to say that the argument of looking at total cost of care is starting mm -hmm. to win and not looking at unit-based care. Because mm -hmm. for a short period of time, the laser beam focus was drugs cost too much without any consideration of what those drugs did to total cost of care, as right. one example. I'd like you both to comment on your views of, of uh, the medical home in the context of OCM and private payers using medical home, but also let's throw another uh, factor in, and that is risk-based contracting, where physicians are going to take downside risk. In New Jersey, uh, we've started, and we've been doing this successfully now for two years, prospective bundles, uh, where you get one check for the entirety of care, um, and you're, right now there is no downside risk, mm -hmm. but it's going to move to downside risk. And we know with MACRA, CMS wants to move to downside risk, not just oncology. Mm -hmm. So 
if you could address it from in its totality, it seems that we're moving from uh, the early stages, which is basically get an EMR, have a nurse in your office, uh, have your office available to this mid-range thing where you're doing extra things, which is kind of OCM, but ultimately is it your opinion that the game is to get to downside risk, and what do you think about that? So I'll start with you, Brandon. So yeah, I think as you mentioned, through macro, there is certainly a trend to uh, downside risk being at least shared by providers. And in terms of the medical home, there's you know key components that will be important to managing that risk. Um, one is having kind of a quarterback who can coordinate the care um, and ensure that uh, the, the best care is being delivered throughout the, throughout the neighborhood as opposed to just the clinic. And then the second being really engaging the patient in that care, uh, engaging their views into the type of care that they want, um, and creating, uh, whether it's technology or, uh, or human interaction, a place where once the patient moves beyond those four walls, they're still a part of that clinic. And so I think that's, that's a really important piece from the medical home part. In terms of taking downside risk and sharing risk and contracting, um, there's a long way to go there in terms of uh, the data. So payers have had claims data for tens and tens of years, and clinicians have had clinical data you know, for, for centuries, and those two have rarely come together in a cohesive manner. And so bundles that are going on today in oncology are uh, very broad. So lung cancer would be a bundle, for example, but the claims data doesn't have small cell versus non-small cell, stage one versus stage four. And so um, for practices to take on, take on that risk, they need to be able to understand the cost of those particular patients as well as how they're performing compared to other practices. And so um, CMS has been, uh, has been providing claims data to practices as part of the OCM so they can start doing this. A lot of the payer models we spoke of, whether it's Aetna or others, um, have a component where the the quality measures and other measures are a way to uh, provide clinical data to the uh, to the payer, so they can incorporate stage now. They can incorporate non-small cell, small cell histology into those bundles. But we have uh, a long way to go uh, to bring those together and uh, provide insights where a clinician can responsibly take on take on that take on that risk. Yeah, I, I couldn't uh, agree with you more. Uh, in our bundles, we are way even past. Uh, first off, it is a marry of the clinical data, um, the laboratory data, genomic data, and the claims data. There's mm -hmm. no other way to do it. You're absolutely right. And it allows the application of precision medicine at scale to do that. And now let's get Dr. Sagar to weigh in. I personally think that the care coordination component, the emphasis on care coordination, is what leads to the success of the uh, medical home model. Um, having the patient at the center and focusing on the other key tenets around it, um, education of the patient, making sure there's a shared decision component, making sure they are heard and what is the best treatment option out there for their, uh, what their options or what their opinion is. You know, what do they want uh, from that particular cancer treatment? Is it curative therapy or is it palliative therapy? Um, does the patient really understand what's going on with all of the challenges that they have to deal with with this new diagnosis. So it is a very challenging time for the patient, um, but if they understand things a little bit better uh, and each patient comes to the journey at a different point in time and different level of understanding. So 
I think it's the medical team's responsibility to uh, judge where the patient is, how much information do they want to know, and how much information are they able to handle. But I think education is a key component to the success um, for them once they understand what the treatment is, what side effects do they expect. Um, if it's a known side effect, how do they manage it? Those are all key components in trying to drive the total cost of care. Um, once the patient understands and if they, their symptoms are managed really well with early palliative care, uh, do they still choose the same therapeutic options in their fourth line of therapy or fifth line of therapy when there's not a lot of evidence supporting those therapies? Um, so what outcome are we looking for? Uh, and building off of a, a patient who understands what their outcomes are, what their treatment options are, is what is going to drive this. You know, I'm not an economist, but I've read somewhat about economic theory. And one of the things that economists do is they think a lot about uh, incentives mm -hmm. to change behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wonder if, as you answer this, if you could also put your economist hat on and, and give us your view of, is this a proper incentive for doctors to have downside risk? And what, are, right. what do you see as the potential risk of doing that? Right. So. I do not believe that bundled um, payment or um, risk-based payment that has a downside component to it will ever fully take over all of oncology care um, and f for the following reasons. Um, so bundled payment and episode-based payment essentially puts physicians and physician practices in the driver's seat with very strong incentives to um, reduce costs as much as possible and at the same time um, provide standard of care. Um, there is a real risk of stinting on care or shunning certain types of patients that um, don't fit perfect, um, perfectly sized standard treatments um, because they're too sick um, they have other things going on um, in terms of other diseases, um, or they have um, other types of social service needs um, that, that make them um, kind of a bad risk from a bundled payment perspective. Um, the, the other thing that concerns me or is a part of um, um, something that we need to worry a little bit about is innovation. In, Areas where there is very significant innovation that's kind of happening in a sequential wave, um, I would argue non-small cell lung cancer treatment is like that. Um, some of the leukemias are like that as well right now. Um, there is an incentive in the bundled payment to not give patients those new, really expensive treatments, because if you do, you'll blow your bundle. Um, and so there's a kind of an incentive to either not provide that care or put off providing that care um, to, um, to another episode. Um, so, so I'm not sure that that's the right way of thinking about providing care to patients, particularly in area of medicine where we're seeing so much scientific promise, but also all Americans should share in that scientific promise not just the ones that kind of look like they're the right um, risk type. Um, because of that, I think we'll see 
bundled or episode-based payments come in in um, areas of cancer where there's um, a set of treatments that can be chosen among, um, where you can define the cancer really well, and where we can kind of match treatments to those patient, those patient types really pretty easily. But areas where there's a significant amount of innovation, um, we may see pathway type development um, because to re really to reduce that incentive to stint on care or not provide innovative care to patients. Yeah, so just a quick anecdote. So when we went uh, and proposed bundles, uh, we had to present it to the Department of Banking and Insurance and we had to address all of the issues you, you just raised. Mm -hmm. Now we were able to address them successfully because of the quality of data we have. And in fact, you can have carve-outs in a bundle that allow for innovation and comorbidities. Right. So, so carve-outs are another way of, right. kind of, of trying to deal with um, reducing the incentive to stint. Brenton, from your perspective, uh, so the oncology spend, uh, you know, everybody puts that same slide up and shows what you spend on the surgery, the medicines, the hospital admissions, the ER visits, da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, but I'd like you to go one layer deeper, and that is that I don't think anyone argues the fact that it's less expensive to treat cancer patients in the community setting in a private practice office than it is in a large hospital setting, uh, even if it's an outpatient hospital setting. And it's not a subtle difference. But yet, everything, at least right now, has been uh, aligned uh, to be adverse to that model. And that's why more and more cancer doctors are giving up their practices and, and just signing up to be employed. Now, there may be a greater strategy there that you can reduce variance by then controlling that because it's fewer providers because they're aggregating. But as you think about this question, also put it in the context of uh, what do you think about this issue of site of service, uh, not just an individual service type, but site of service? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think what you're alluding to is a lot of 340B and other policies that uh, make it more economically uh, feasible uh, to provide hospital-based versus community-based oncology care. And we have seen a tremendous uh, shift in community oncology. I think it was 80, 90 percent in 2004 happening in the community, and now it's about 50-50 um, due to a, a side effect largely of uh, a lot of these, these policies. Um, and I think as we go towards value-based care, it's, it's going to be a really important point in terms of where can um, that totality of care happen. I think there are arguments for both sides in terms of um, large hospitals uh, have, can have robust IT infrastructures and have uh, connected uh, specialists and subspecialists throughout and have a view into that. And alternatively, smaller practices are lean. Uh, they don't have as much bureaucracy. They can change their, their clinical processes on a dime and can therefore iterate a lot, a lot faster. And I think we've seen that with some of the 2014 ACO data. And so it'll be interesting to see as these two separate entities uh, both shift to value-based care, uh, how they're able to evolve. But certainly, uh, site of service has had an impact on the landscape of uh, uh, where oncology is being delivered today. What do you think? I mean, there's been, I've, I've actually witnessed it. There's a literal schizophrenia about the messaging from government. Now, this is CMS, uh, and I know the people, and they really want to do the right thing. On the one hand, they want to incentivize patients to go to 
a site where quality is there, but it's the least expensive site of service. But on the other hand, same group of individuals that are putting out uh, policies where you know you're cutting, cutting, cutting the 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 revenue and the uh, margin on drug, and that's in fact how oncologists make their living and support the oncology nurses and all the other added expenses, mm -hmm. and inventory incredibly expensive drugs. Right. So. What, what are your thoughts about that schizophrenia? Sure, so um, I agree that policy, particularly among the government payers, has been a little schizophrenic. Um, I think on one hand, there is this general understanding that bigger is better because we get um, scale. Um, and um, with scale comes economies of production. Um, and it, that should be true for all areas of medicine, just like it is for other um, um, aspects of the market. Um, on the other hand, the more that we consolidate, the more um, providers have negotiating power to set rates or help set rates with commercial insurers, um, but also drive um, patients to certain types of care settings where the bills can be um, for exactly the same type of care can be double um, depending on the setting. Um, so we've seen a number of studies that have shown that, particularly for, for drug-based um, cancer. So site of care concerns are an issue, they're real. Um, at the same time, I would argue um, it's really good and healthy for cancer care um, and for patients to have a choice of where they get their care provided. Um, it, um, it's good for families to be able to choose where they're going to get their care because there's transportation costs, there's other types of costs associated with the caring for one's loved one when, um, when they have cancer that are important for families to be able to choose. Um, and also choice brings competition, brings quality. Um, so we're, we're um, we're kind of struggling with those two sides of the market, if you will. Um, I do think that there will be more consolidation coming um, as we transition to um, more um, um, incentives for reducing the cost of certain types of care or managing the cost of certain types of care. Um, smaller practices are just simply not going to be able to take that risk um, or, gonna, or they're going to have to invest in things that they just don't have the money to or the access to capital to do. Um, but um, I also think the incentives for, uh, the, the really strong incentives to drive um, patients into the hospital outpatient department are going to change dramatically once we have site of care service payments that normalize between the community and the hospital. Um, MedPAC, which is the advisory uh, uh, committee for, um, for the Medicare program, has already recommended a 43% reduction in facility fees. That will dramatically change the incentives for patients being seen um, um, in a hospital setting as opposed to in the community setting. Okay, great comments there. Now let's jump back over to Dr. Sarga and get her take. Are there any challenges in working with community, community oncologists versus you know, hospital-based providers in this value-based world? Um, 
we have actually worked with both community-based oncologists and facility-based um, groups as well. Um, we have not seen a major change in how doctors approach this whole problem. Um, the challenges may come in in the, in the infrastructure cost, but we've noticed that even hospitals find that this is a huge investment that they have to make in the EHR technology or hiring somebody to look at their cost data, look at their claims data and understand um, where they're not doing as well as someone else does according to a national, compared to a national benchmark, for example. Um, so the cost, the investment is pretty steep, I think, for hospitals as well. I don't think um, you know, it can be downplayed. But overall, um, we've noticed that uh, community oncologists are a little bit more open to the approach at this point. Uh, but I should say that we've had, we've been pleasantly surprised with a lot of facility-based uh, practices as well. We've talked to several hospital-based groups. We have a couple of hospitals in our uh, model as well. And um, they do have navigators in place. They do have very good survivorship programs in place um, that our model encourages. Um, and they've done really well um, so far. But all these relationships are fairly new. So like I said earlier, it's a test and learn um, process at this point. Um, and you know, as we go along, we'll understand the opportunity a little bit better. If we take the premise that regardless of where you live, if you're an American citizen, that you should get the same level of care as any other American citizen, and we look at the obvious inequalities of distribution of care throughout the country. And then you layer on top of that the complexity and expense of immuno-oncology. Um, this, is, this is its own crisis flashpoint. So with immuno-oncology, I'm actually a practicing immuno-oncologist. That's what I did my research in, and this is what I do every day. Um, and so I see things I've never seen before. I've seen young people with metastatic melanoma, with brain metastasis, have complete responses, and they're now five, seven years out, they're seemingly cured. And it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that. Um, it's very complicated to give these drugs, and the side effect profile of these drugs, if you don't manage them right, they can be deadly. And so you have this incredible, not incremental benefit, but profoundly change of care benefit. And now we have safety net hospitals that are struggling, and you layer on top of that alternative payment models. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're putting everything in a blender and hitting spin, <laughs> right? So, you know, how do you see from your perspective all of this tying out? Yeah, so in the short run, a lot of the um, critical access hospitals, rural health clinics, federally qualified health centers have been exempt from um, participation in models such as the OCM. Um, so with all of this innovation happening, they're, they're exempt from uh, jumping in and their path will kind of take, take over time. In terms of Im immuno-oncology and combination uh, immunotherapy, agree the, uh, the promise and what we've seen with patients has been fantastic. And I think that's the point to key in on in that it's delivering for certain patients tremendous outcomes. And so um, there's certainly an appetite among various stakeholders to move towards um, some outcomes-based drug pricing. And in that lens, it then becomes uh, quite, quite feasible in terms of delivering tremendous outcomes for these particular patients. Uh, the, the challenge becomes how to measure that in the real world. Um, you can do uh, clinical trials and cohort analyses and then say for this set of patients, this is the cost. 
um, but to really uh, efficiently and, and accurately do that at scale, um, leveraging real-world data to say the patient that Dr. Pakora treated now is living 40 years longer, um, there's a price for that versus the other patient Dr. Pakora treated that um, passed, passed away a week later. Um, so there's, there's an opportunity to look at different payment models in that regard, and I think bringing it back to the patient um, will be key there in terms of the outcomes the, the drug's actually delivering. So I agree with Brendan, and I think the question is um, who takes risks for those type of treatments? My view is that um, physicians shouldn't be on the hook either way for um, patient benefit or patient costs associated with really new things, including the um, uh, PD-1 inhibitors. Um, but instead, um, really, it's, it's uh, pharmaceutical companies that should be holding some of this risk. Um, and so moving towards paying for outcomes um, where um, uh, it's um, pharma that's providing drugs and um, some combination of insurers plus providers that are providing data on real-world outcomes, um, which is going to flow back to pharma in terms of payment and potentially to providers in some way in terms of some other alternative other payment is where we're going to go. Those drugs are actually a great example where, frankly, we don't really know which, which patients are going to respond perfectly um, to those treatments, and it's entirely possible that we're going to have to layer one drug on top of another drug in order to get durable um, uh, responsivity. And so in that case, um, it's going to be very, very difficult for physicians and or patients to be holding that risk. Um, someone else has to be holding the risk for that treatment, um, and it's likely going to be some combination of the payers, the insurers, plus pharma. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I agree. I mean, in our personal experience, we are now at the table with big data, precision analytics, payers, pharma, and we're all figuring this out together. So I think that's going to be as transformative as anything we've talked about. Yes. And that the pharmaceutical industry and the biotechnology industry is going to understand the risk they're taking is not just the risk of discovery and approval, it's also the risk of efficacy in the real world setting. The gorilla in the, in the room is electronic health records um, and how they have transformed the practice of medicine. Uh, there are many doctors who believe that, uh, that this is wonderful uh, and there's other, an e probably an equal number of doctors who feel that this has been an incredible intrusion and they're spending more time at the computer than they are at the bedside. And that's a huge discussion. You add onto it um, the sorts of things that Brenton and I are doing with uh, big data and health analytics, and you add to that what government is doing, um, you, you almost worry, will there be information overload and will it just shut the operation down? Because you still have to see the patient, touch the patient, uh, do something to make them better, right? And that takes time. Mm -hmm. And time is the only thing that's not fungible here, <laughs> unless you go really fast, right? So, um, you know, Brenton, you're, you're an expert in this and you're, you're, you have, you're spending your career on it now. How do you see, in a positive way, the whole, not, not just the area you're working on, but the, whole, the entirety as a practicing doctor, mm -hmm. information technology changing how you practice medicine? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, as you were mentioning, electronic medical records to date have historically been used as a 
historical chart, um, facilitation of billing, documentation for malpractice, things that don't um, necessarily get doctors very excited about taking, you know, taking care of their patients. And so I think right now with alternative payment models, we're at, a, we're at an inflection point where the electronic medical record can really move beyond becoming that kind of receptacle of information in terms of being able to pull out in structured, in structured fields information, performing analytics on that, and then bringing that back into the point of care at the electronic medical record. I think a lot of things we see today with alternative payment models is there's new requirements and um, there's a lot of different technologies that physicians are trying to patch together to, to work with it. So um, they'll open up a pathway portal here, they'll open up a PR, patient report outcome portal here, they'll document their note. Um, and what happens in those circumstances, as you, as you know, we're, we're practicing very uh, under time constraints that those become relegated to back office tasks if there's friction with the with the technology. So um, the first piece is making it frictionless and part part of that workflow, and then it does create the opportunity to really leverage information across a clinic. So you can see at your clinic who who are the types of patients needing more care, who are the types of physicians who are providing highest quality care, but even more importantly across the country, and being able to benchmark and unearth. Uh, whether it's for clinical research or for practice transformation lessons, what are the best ways to be treating our cancer patients? And I think that's what uh, gets me excited, what gets a lot, of, a lot of physicians excited about the future of technology, but we need to very quickly move beyond the EMR as a receptacle of information and instead as a vehicle for uh, higher level data analytics that can then be brought back to the point of care. And um, with alternative payment models, there's certainly the opportunity being set for that. Serena, um, you know, add to that whatever you like, but I'd like you also to focus again from your from your area of expertise on the whole idea of, um, you know, right now I'll just say it in a general general way, we're really trying to move people away from fee for service gradually, um, and it's something a lot of people cling to because they're comfortable, as you alluded mm -hmm. to before, and we're in this intermediate zone where we're trying these things like pathways and OCM and. You can actually pick those apart pretty easily uh, about whether or not they really are going to bring value to the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, everybody wants to pay for outcomes. I mean, the FDA approves drugs based on outcomes. Uh, you shouldn't get you know, a huge check if your drug didn't work. Uh, the doctor, if they do something wrong, shouldn't get rewarded for that. So it's really going to go to outcomes. So how do you see, um, and this is heavy IT, this is IT intensive to mm -hmm. be able to do this at scale. Mm -hmm. Where do you see this residing? Is this going to be uh, from the uh, private industry coming up with novel solutions like, you know, I'm not saying in particular, but just an example, Apple changed the way we think about phones. As an example, Microsoft changed the way we thought about typewriters. Is it going to come from something like that? Or do you see this really, because it's healthcare, the role of government, and will government start providing uh, big data initiatives and things for people to use, and it won't be from the commercial. How do you see it playing out? Yeah, so um, I, I'm a big believer that the private sector will come and find solutions to these problems now that they're identified as problems that need solutions. Um, and I think for a very long time, um, the um, uh, medical providers have been comfortable in a space where uh, they're practicing using uh, paper records or electronic medical records that are kind of 
not really very smart machines. Um, we're moving away from that. Um, there are some practices that are in the vanguard of that. There are some um, uh, companies that are in, in the vanguard of that, but I think we're gonna see a lot more innovation in this space. Um, we're certainly seeing a lot of investment in tech moving towards uh, medical um, sphere now. One thing I wanna point out is that um, right now, our ER, our existing EMR systems are very siloed. They sit in a medical practice or in a hospital, but they really can't talk um, between one provider group to another provider group or a hospital to a provider group in the community. Um, one of the things that I'm really excited about is um, that um, really government needs to kind of allow um, this siloed behavior to stop and create incentives not for providers or for um, um, hospitals to hold on and hoard their data, but instead to create win-wins where, um, where these type of information systems can start to talk to each other between inpatient and outpatient setting or between your oncologist and your diabetes provider. That's going to make a big difference, I think. Once again, I'd like to toss this over to Dr. Sagar and get her opinion on the subject. Health IT impact on oncology care. I think it's a, um, it's a necessary evil, unfortunately, at this point. Um, we want to collect data. We want to make sure our patients, our customers, who are our customers, are getting the evidence-based medicine, which will, we're hoping, lead to better outcomes. Um, so to understand that, to, uh, to, to define quality better, we have to be able to collect data. And health IT is an integral component of that. Um, now, it doesn't always, it's not always the easiest thing to work with. It's not always the easiest thing to get data from. And there are a lot of challenges that we're, we are having in collecting this information and you know, having this data exchange back and forth between the practice versus the, the payer. But I think, if we can come up with better solutions as we go forward into how to understand this, how to get data better, how to measure quality better, I think, um, you know, I think that's where the challenge lies for the next several years. The big issue we have in healthcare, unlike other industries, is HIPAA, uh, uh, healthcare privacy. Uh, there's something called trade secrets. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one hospital competes with another. Uh, even though they're not-for-profits, I could never quite figure this out, but they behave very much like for-profits uh, in their competitive landscape. So, you know, obviously the patient owns, owns, owns their own information, but who owns the aggregate of information? Because this is a big debate right now. Right. So if I'm a hospital system and I have 5,000 patients in my database, or if I'm a company, an IT company, and I have I own an EHR and I have that information in my database, mm -hmm. not the individual patient, but who, who owns the aggregate data from your perspective? Who should have access to it? De-identified, of course, because right. obviously you've got to protect privacy. Mm -hmm. uh, is that a trade secret or is that something that's no really should be in the public domain? I believe that putting information in the public domain is um, crucial to getting um, innovation to really work in the space. Um, and um, I also believe very strongly that patients are ultimately uh, the owners of their own data. And so I think that what we will 
hopefully see is we're in this temporary period or in transition period right now where there are a lot of companies that um, want to hold on to certain pieces of this data and try to monetize it. But um, over time, I think um, we'll see new information systems come about that put patients more in the driver's seat of actually holding onto data and being able to provide, to provide it to different uh, providers that are taking care of them. Um, and government does have a role in, um, in um, setting regulation to protect patient privacy, um, in setting regulation and kind of fair playing fields for providers to start talking to each other um, and actually sharing data as opposed to, again, hoarding data for um, their own financial purposes, um, we'll, we'll see. So let me ask you the question in yep. a different way, and I'll use an example. So right now, if the federal government said to Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Celgene, and Amgen, guess what? All the data you have is now going to be put in the public domain. Right? Everything you have about every clinical trial, even in the middle of trials, everyone's going to know. Um, and there really are no trade secrets. Right? Put that in the context of the federal government says to the University of whoever uh, or company X, mm -hmm. uh, EMR company or a data analytics company, all of your data is going public. De-identified, mm -hmm. of course, so mm -hmm. not the individual patient <laughs> right, level. Right? De-identified. <laughs> it's not tied to a person. But you don't own that. That's the public domain. How would that work? In other words, you know, I, I, I struggle with this, and I think a lot about mm -hmm. it. I like both of your opinions. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people struggle with this. So why is it okay for Boeing to keep its information private about what it's doing and uh, Amgen to keep inf its information private about what it's doing? You know, it, it has to tell the FDA, but that's confidential, right? That's still not in the public domain. But yet, if a company wants to create a new business model where information is monetized, you know, there's the pro and the con of that. How, how yeah. do you look at it? I think it? it's a great question. Yeah. And the first piece being, you know, the government's responsibility to set up the framework to uh, facilitate those solutions. So mm -hmm. whether it's updating of, of certain laws or incentives around uh, data exchange, that type of framework is going to be very important for the private industry to uh, solve within that. Um, and with the innovation we're seeing both in immuno-oncology and technology at large, it's challenging for the government to keep up with that as the first piece. The second piece being, I think the answer is usually lies when you bring it back to the patient. Mm -hmm. So here we have a patient who is actually the most interoperable part of the healthcare system. The patient is actually going every single place. So finding a way to engage them in, in their information is, is key. And the third piece I want to bring up, though, is there's a subtlety between information and usable data. And so um, a patient, for example, might get, you know, PDFs and CDs and all of this information. And um, if there's interoperability or um, partnerships between hospitals, those CDs and those PDFs will be sent over. And that's one exchange of information. But then there's kind of a higher level uh, order of information, which is whether it's processing structured data, um, looking through um, those PDFs and pulling out um, information so that it's searchable and mineable. And that's a lot of work that various organizations are doing. Um, and they're doing that to uh, drive insights back down to the patient. And so I think that's another important piece of information. But um, when we talk about information exchange and data exchange, 
It's obviously a central tenant of coordinated important care, but all information is not equal. If one hospital is interoperable with another, um, they're either getting unstructured information, which takes a lot of time to re read through just for one patient, let alone millions of patients, um, or uh, it's structured for certain data points. And so looking at that level of um, granularity of the data, I think, is important to, to these discussions. The whole section we're talking about now is the complexity, the nuances, ownership, but change requires capital investment, right? There'd be no drugs to give to people if there wasn't people taking risk with capital investment. The same thing with this new information age. I mean, Google is a private company, right? It was started by venture capitalists. So venture capitalists have an expected rate of return on their investment. That's how our whole system works. So how do we um, maintain uh, the integrity of the patient's right to their own information, which is absolute? No one, anyone disagreeing with that is crazy. But, but at the same time, have an environment where people are actually willing before, this is to you, mm -hmm. before you said, you know, you, you support private industry, mm -hmm. but private industry won't go here, won't make the investment if all of a sudden their trade secrets, their ability to monetize their, their, their creation and get the return on investment evaporates. Mm -hmm. So how do we thread this needle? Private companies make money off of the opportunity to, um, um, to monetize investment. Usually, um, we think of monetizing their investment in a short period of time, um, five years, 10 years, 20 years, if, um, if the invention is patentable. But um, business practices based on information um, may not enjoy the same protection that making a product such as a pill um, will will enjoy. Um, and that's just the reality. Um, so there are a lot of pathway type programs right now that are, um, that are uh, getting investments and building infrastructure out right now. Um, that's a business practice. Uh, we should expect those business, pra business practices to make some return on their investment, but um, others will enter the market and they will compete down to marginal cost. Um, I don't think that we're going to see um, governments, the government choosing winners and losers over the path pathways um, uh, type companies right now. Um, I think that we're, we're really, uh, there's a lot of move to let providers um, choose their own systems, but also for insurers to use their own systems. Um, and nor should, should um, investors or insurers or providers um, be um, thinking that their revenue stream for the next 20 years is going to be based on exploiting all of the information that they have. A lot of that information is going to get old. They need investment and should, to make it actionable. Um, and uh, they may not be able to exploit that revenue stream forever. So that, that, dove, that dovetails to the last question of this section. So with all that being said, we know that most hospitals in America, not all, but most hospitals in America work on an operating margin of under 2%, right? And we know that community oncology practices, because we're talking about them, many of them are now starting to approach going underwater and they're closing their doors. These are the, this is reality. They're closing their doors and they're 
handing their keys over to the local hospitals, mm -hmm. which are operating at a margin of 1%. Mm -hmm. And now somewhere money has to come in to invest in all of this infrastructure to move us from fever service to value. So it appears as if the logic flow is broken. Um, and so, you know, I'd like you each to comment on your point of view of if there's no ability to maintain and build on business practice margins, as you've articulated, and there is uh, a growing divide based on regulation, which we didn't bring up, between what pharmaceutical companies who have very large margins can do in support, because uh, they can't anymore because of all the conflicts of interest and everything else. The fact that the government, uh, our national debt is becoming, at, you know, is now at historic proportions. Where's this money going to come from uh, to infuse into here if it's not equity investment from the private market? Where's the money going to come from? So I'll start yeah. with you. So two things. One is the way that a lot of the alternative payment models are being set up are for a, an upfront per member per month with the idea that a portion of that will be invested in a variety of activities required for success. So hiring more people, some technology investments, um, training, other things like that. Um, but albeit, as you mentioned, that's still not a, a large sum, and um, it's, or, it's coming already from a, s a small pie. And so what that does on secondarily is it creates uh, the need to provide um, very valuable technologies at a, affordable prices to the users. And so Google that you brought up is a great example. Um, Gmail, I don't pay for my Gmail, I don't pay for Googling it. Um, but it's providing providing a, a lot of a lot of value and therefore is being used very widely. Um, however, they also have alternative alternative business models to supplement that and be able to provide those uh, services at a cost that our individual users can bear. Um, but the other piece being just technologic innovation in general, being able to bring that cost down. So previously, hospitals would have to buy servers and have a room for the server and someone to watch the server and someone to watch the person watching the server and all of these things. And now we have cloud-based technology um, and brings that, that unit cost for the individual down. And so um, those types of things as well are going to be very important in this, uh, this confined, confined resources that we have for, for healthcare. I like the Google example because you can Google for free, but it's really not for free because you get 22 commercials. Mm -hmm. That is how Google makes its money. Mm -hmm. And there's no law that says Google cannot advertise. Mm -hmm. But there are laws that say, as an example, the pharmaceutical industry, which does have large margins, mm -hmm. have very severe limitations on how they can advertise and transfer money. Mm -hmm. I think it's now $10, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a doc and you spend $10.12, you're on a list. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, from your perspective, uh, how do we get these things aligned so there's a rational mm -hmm. macro business model mm -hmm. that makes sense? Um, well, it used. To, so I think what you're alluding to is that there's this kind of fixed cost of producing healthcare that providers need to invest in, um, and then there are the marginal cost of of, um, of uh, production of producing health for patients. Um, and the question is, where's the money going to come from for doing all of this fixed cost investment? And what I would argue is that um, hospitals and other providers need to kind of fundamentally rethink what they invest in and that has very high fixed costs. So for example, 
it used to be the case 10 years ago or 15 years ago that every hospital in America was running to buy their own MRI machine. Or uh, the, the new one is um, all those robotic surgeries <laughs> machines um, that do certain types of um, cancer treatment. There is no reason why every hospital in America or every provider in America needs their own MRI um, or their own robotic surgery lab. Um, it used to be that you made money off of those type of fixed investments, um, but it may not be anymore. Um, so instead, um, I think we'll see um, um, providers move towards investments that really do pay off in the long term and that aren't really used to block out competitors from doing their thing or kind of keeping up with competitors, but instead are really tailored to their own patient, um, their own managing the healthcare of their own um, sets of patients and their unique qualities. Um, so that may be very different for practices in an in a urban environment relative to practices in a rural environment. There may be more fixed costs for rural providers than there are for urban urban providers. But um, some of that cost is going to have to be defrayed from payment by insurers, both government but other insur but other payers as well. Um, and some of it's going to have to come from um, the private sector investing. Patient engagement remains a crucial aspect of healthcare reform, and meaningful use requirements by CMS advocate for patient access to their electronic health data via patient portals. Would you describe new payment models as being patient-centric? Again, I think that in the rush to put in all of these new payment models and get providers very oriented towards taking risk or at least and even reporting quality, um, there can be this tendency to lose sight of patients and their families. And I, I very much hope that the patient comes back into the center of the picture here. Um, again, I believe strongly that certain types of risk models for certain types of cancer patients um, uh, are actually going to bring patients more into the center of care. So for example, I believe that, that um, medical care models or medical home type models um, have great promise in um, taking care of patients in a holistic way, in meeting both their care needs for cancer treatment, but also taking care of diabetes, taking care of other types of illnesses they may be, they may be suffering from, and also dealing with transportation costs um, and taking care of some of the other support that they need. So I think Providers that are already doing these models are talking about the great success that they are having in reorienting care towards patients. It just may not be what's being measured currently, but we're going to get there. I think a lot of these alternative payment models have specific requirements that engender certain aspects of patient-centeredness. For example, uh, the OCM requires a care plan, 13 mm -hmm. points documenting the treatment, the goals, the expected response. Um, which is to be provided to that patient to ensure they have a document um, that they can understand in patient-centered language. There are uh, quality measures around patient satisfaction, um, shared decision-making such as percentages of advanced care plans um, documented. Again, these are s specific aspects, um, certainly not, not the whole picture. And I think to get to the, to, the, to the whole picture and really making the patient at the center of it, it turns into 
how the patient is really the cent a central piece of um, physicians taking on risk. So um, patients knowing where where to call when they're ha when they're having trouble. Physici patients really engaged and educated about their care. There aren't as many specific requirements around that, and I think practices. Uh, together are going to come up with the solution on how best to engage them, whether that's through text messages or apps or phone calls or programs and other ways to really engage them in that care with the ultimate shared goal of avoiding an unnecessary hospitalization uh, or an un unnecessary kind of decrement in their health. Um, but that piece of shared savings and whatnot is a lot more nebulous than percentage of patients getting X or percentage of patients getting Y. Yeah. I, I mean, I would argue that the um, I mean, the biggest potential way of managing a lot of the risk of these patients is just keeping them out of the hospital. Um, and so no matter whether, um, no matter your flavor of alternative payment method, um, that choice of trying to keep patients out of the hospital um, is going to be front and center of any practice doing this um, in the next five years. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to supplement it. Um, in that uh, we've had enough experience now we've been able to change the behaviors of payers mm -hmm. because of the level of data that we're able to to acquire and that is you know the worst the biggest tragedy is someone not getting the right care having the wrong outcome and believe it or not it actually costs more money so we've been able to change without getting into specific details reimbursement uh, policies of major payers because by spending a little bit of money up front, they save, they get a 10x return mm -hmm. downstream. And in one example, women are found to not need chemotherapy who were getting it, now they don't. And in another example, people were getting very toxic medications when they could get very less toxic and highly more effective medications and live four times longer. So my personal view as a practicing cancer doctor and as a researcher is that this is a wonderful transition from just anarchy, where variance reigns, to reigning in variance, but then moving to precision. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the president deserves a lot of credit for the emphasis he put on precision medicine. Mm -hmm. And precision medicine, when you think about solving the end of one problem, population health is you do the same thing pretty much for a big population, not accounting for the variability person to person and you get it about 80% of the time right. Precision medicine, if you're really good at it, you get it right all the time and then you add it all up and you have the end of one problem signed, uh, solved, but yet you've done the same thing as, as you try to do in population health. Mm -hmm. So what's going to change this entire dialogue, uh, and it's gonna make regulators and re uh, uh, payers crazy, is that we're just starting to get our head around all the things we just talked about <laughs> and it's gonna move to the right again with <laughs> immuno-oncology, genomics, proteonomics, and other things. So it's, you know, it's just an incredible time. Now let's jump back over to Dr. Sarga and get her take. Are existing APMs patient-centered or not? Definitely. I think uh, we've all gotten away from it with the fee-for-service world, with the IOM report coming out and talking about how disjointed care has been. I think a lot of us have taken a look at that and wanted to bring the patient back to the center, trying to make sure that care is integrated and coordinated completely. Uh, it's not just about um, getting evidence-based medicine, although that is a huge component of it. We want to make sure that patients are getting NCCN guidelines, 
uh, based approach uh, for their treatments as much as possible. There might be variations, we understand that, but for the most part we want to focus on evidence-based medicine. We also want to make sure that the patient's voice is heard uh, as much as possible. Our model, we've tried to keep it as simple as possible for a reason. We don't want to mandate too many things, we don't want to regulate too many things, we want to give the provider a certain amount of freedom to be able to take care of their patient as well as they can. Um, so the whole model is centered around the patient, but we want to encourage that physician-patient interaction and build on that relationship. I have never had a patient, not once, not ever, come into my room and tell me they want to die more cost-effectively. Um, yeah. Not once. Um, and yet, we know that the whole idea of survivorship is not just how do you survive your cancer, but when you're not going to survive your cancer, how do you live the remainder of your life? You know, so I put a bigger circle around survivorship. And you know, as we move away from uh, try every last thing to the every last moment and we get into precision medicine, one of the benefits of precision medicine is to know when to stop sooner. And then the other benefit is uh, that there are things you can do as time goes on uh, where you can prevent second cancers and recurrences and things. So this whole concept of survivorship, do you both believe that the current models have spent enough time thinking about survivorship and end-of-life care, because I kind of put those two things together, or do you think there's more room uh, for, there's room for improvement? Yeah, I think the current alternative payment models largely focus in oncology on patients on active treatment, um, so they would exclude a large portion of those patients in terms of just long-term survivorship clinic, um, and that would leave just those patients with towards the end of life in your survivorship model. I, th I really like what, you're, what mm -hmm. you said about precision medicine and kind of to take that uh, and analogize it would be for really successful survivorship we need to do precision uh, goals of care. Um, so that N of one, that patient, what do they specifically exactly want out of their care? Um, they don't say I want the most cost effective care but they might have strong feelings about I don't want to die intubated on a uh, on a ventilator, or I don't want to spend my last 30 days at a hospital two hours from my family, um, or um, a feeding tube, or these other things. And so having those discussions take time, they're difficult, um, and they're, they change week to week, month to month, but having a process in place for that I think will be really important uh, to, um, you might want to say cost-effective care, but from the patient's eyes it's having kind of the most effective care for their goals. Right. Um, so I agree, I think that survivorship planning um, and hospice planning are incredibly important. Right now, the, the focus really is on trying to reduce the variability in what is provided to patients who are, as you mentioned, on active treatment. But we're already seeing providers start to talk a lot more about end-of-life care within this. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if the kind of alternative payment model 2.0 or 3.0 that we ultimately get in a couple of years um, has a much greater emphasis um, either in terms of standalone payments for end-of-life care planning and survivorship planning or um, quality metrics attached to those or both. 
um, that really, again, puts the patient at the center of both their treatment, but also their survivorship. Um, one last thing that I think is really important here um, is that it's not just um, patients putting patients at the center of um, the long-term consequences of their treatment, um, but also um, there are financial issues related to their long-term um, implications of their treatment that I think we're beginning to see um, more data about and physicians and insurers be more cognizant of. The more that patients are at risk for um, taking responsibility for uh, their cancer care, the more they have to come up with money to pay for stem cell transplants and other types of things um, that their insurers may not pay the full price of. So thinking about care planning, that's not just about long-term patient outcomes, um, but also the financial consequences of patients for surviving their cancer, but now having really big medical bills that they have to deal with, um, is, um, I think, is the future. So this has been a really great discussion. Let's take a minute to get Dr. Sagar to jump in and give us her perspective. So do I think that APMs um, account for survivorship care? Absolutely. Um, our model um, does talk about emphasis on survivorship care. A um, couple of key components here is we want the treating oncologist to tie back to the patient's primary care physician if there is one. For some patients, we do understand that the oncologist becomes a primary care physician, at least for that duration um, that they're taking care of them, especially in advanced stage illnesses. But we feel that a lot of times primary care physicians have had a relationship with that patient for a lot longer than the oncologist has. And they may have a relationship with the whole family a lot of times. So the oncologist has to tie it back to the, to the pr primary care physician and we're hoping that they will give them a summary of what treatment did the patient have, what kind of diagnosis did they have, what stage of cancer, um, what can they expect, and what are the treatments or surveillance strategies that need to be incorporated. Do they need to have scans on a regular basis, and who will be in charge of ordering those scans? Um, so those are all key questions that need to be uh, incorporated, in, and our model definitely does that. Just to follow on that patient theme that we concluded with, I think it's undoubted that there's a multi-stakeholder movement to value in oncology, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's providers, payers, uh, even life science companies increasingly. And it's just so important that as we measure the success of these programs, whether it's measuring the success of OCM or measuring the success of uh, Part B or these other things that we keep in mind, the ultimate success metric being the value delivered to that patient. and so including them in these discussions, including them kind of in every conversation around is, is value being delivered is, is going to be critically important that we don't stray towards, um, towards too much policy or too much uh, favoritism towards one stakeholder because at the end of the day, the patient is at the center of this uh, alternative payment model uh, shift. Um, I would say the following. Um, in this rush to focus on value-based care, we lose sight of the fact that we are a very rich country that believes strongly in providing access to medical care for 
our entire population. And so we can afford both to provide basic access to cancer screening and at the same time provide access to the most expensive, cutting edge um, precision in medicine that can provide durable cures um, if we spend our money wisely. And so what I hope to see and I think is beginning to be a part of the national conversation is a focus on how can we get this system focused on value um, where we're using money um, most wisely and we're not putting patients um, at the center of really expensive stuff that doesn't do that much for them or um, at the center of stuff that does a lot for them but where they have to foot the bill too much. So hopefully we'll, we'll, we're moving in that direction. Yeah. So I'd like to end it by saying, you know, it's very easy to get angry and cynical about all of this. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, somebody has to really start to think about this. And it's wonderful that you two have dedicated part of your careers thinking about this. And for me, uh, I really believe that uh, no one has the right to do the wrong thing for a patient. We can argue about what the right thing is, and that's always going to be an argument in medicine, but no one has the right to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And the better we can identify the wrong things and prevent them from happening, I think there's plenty of money from that savings that could uh, be used for all the things you just said. Right. Um, the key over the next few years is to make certain we don't create perverse incentives or cross incentives, mm -hmm. uh, or we don't have two parts of government actually working against each other for this to happen. And it's going to take people from the economics community, from the IT community, from the medical community to work in partnership, I believe to make this a, a reality. On behalf of our panel, we thank you for following the fall 2016 program of the Oncology Stakeholder Summit Series. We hope you found this peer exchange informative and hope you will join us as the series continues.